Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we have a very special and maybe even a little bittersweet episode. We started this podcast in January by focusing on the strength of compassion. Every month since then, we've dedicated a series of episodes to a different strength, exploring mindfulness, learning, grit, gratitude, confidence, calm, motivation, intimacy, courage, and aspiration. Whether you started at the very beginning or joined us along the way, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you. In the last year, this podcast has been downloaded about 400,000 times, which is frankly just amazing to me and certainly blows any expectations I had for it completely out of the water. It's been pretty incredible to read the wonderfully supportive comments people have left and the emails they've taken the time to send in. So again, for Dr. Hansen and for myself, I'd like to say truly, thank you for your support over the last year. And we're absolutely planning on continuing the podcast next year and are looking forward to covering a whole new host of topics. But today, we're bringing our year-long journey through the 12 strengths to a close with our final episode focused on generosity, widening the circle of us. We'll also take a little time during this episode to recap the year as a whole. And to help us do that, I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So would you mind starting by explaining what you mean by widening the circle of us? Yeah, I think one way to understand it is to locate it in the context of our fundamental nature as social mammals, uh, living together with other people in groups of about 30 to 50 altogether through most of our lifespan. And in that context, the us of the group was incredibly important for our own day-to-day survival, and uh, our actions with them affected the likelihood of survival of our kin. Mm. So one of the most primary adaptations, arguably the most primary adaptation for human beings over the last several million years, has been to group living. Humans that were good at being part of a group, cooperating with us, uh, understanding each other, good at empathy, good at attachment, good at love, good at altruism, good at politics, good at gossip, good at the rough and tumble of decision-making in a small hunter-gatherer band, uh, were able to pass on their genes more successfully and help others of their kin to do the same. So that sense of the circle of us is really fundamental, and it forms a basic kind of paradigm that's often unconscious operating in the background that we use a kind of frame of reference as we go through our day. So we have us. We may not like every member of us, but you're part of us, right? We're all a us or a we. And then there's them. All those other beings back in the Serengeti Plains or here today in our fractured political landscape or in the international stage, all those thems who are, quote-unquote, not like me, Hmm. not my kind. I had a client of mine who grew up amidst great wealth on the East Coast, and he said there was a saying, which you can imagine some elderly person sniffing while holding a teacup, twitching a little finger, not our kind, dear. Mm -hmm. And that is really a, a fundamental vulnerability in us as people, to be prejudiced, to be discriminating, to be biased against those who are not like me. So it seems to me a wonderful and even a little you know, epic or sweeping topic to explore here in this culminating podcast over this series to really reflect on the feeling of us 
in ways that are healthy. The recognition of those that we are competing with or are adversarial with or legitimately are, in some sense, our our enemy that we need to deal with and be strong with regard to, while also not getting sucked into the problematic tendencies toward prejudice, discrimination, dehumanization, and even the, you know, full horrors of, let's say, ethnic cleansing and war. So it's a really neat topic, and I want to add my voice for us to yours when I say that our listeners, human, real people, uh, have been held in my mind and in my heart as we've done this journey together. And I want to say, in a, in a way that seems uh, resonant with the topic today, that uh, those who have been part of this podcast and have been touched by it and have touched Forrest to me through their own reactions are, for us, actually included in a really big us. Yeah, absolutely. So this is fundamentally a tendency that evolved into us. Mm-hmm. Is that more or less correct? Like it was a survival mechanism? Yeah. There's a lot of research that shows that if you uh, prime people in, in very seemingly inconspicuous or silly ways, like you have them wear a red bandana instead of a blue bandana, sure, they will immediately make red better than blue mm. and immediately tend to be less empathic for those who wear the blue bandana because they're not like me. Now, the circle of us uh, can expand and contract. And there are moments where I think we're, we're caught up in individual conflict, say, with somebody, where the circle of us has just one being inside it, mm-hmm. me, right? But then it becomes the us is, you know, our couple against the family system. Yeah. Then there's our family against our neighbors. Then it's our neighborhood against the larger community. Mm-hmm. And then you just keep going and going and going. So this notion of the usness of things is, is fairly flexible. But there is a lot of research that shows that as soon as you uh, start moving into the self-other distinction, the us-them distinction, it puts you on a slippery slope that pretty quickly can move into uh, mistreating others, but also paying a price yourself. Because uh, when we them other people, um, it hurts us too. Yeah, so to follow up on that, to kind of play devil's advocate here for a second, I what think a surprise. Yeah, what a surprise, right? <laughs> um, I think that it's all well and good to just kind of generalize and say, you know, we should be more inclusive right. or whatever it might be. But I can think of a, plenty of ways where being selfish would have a lot of benefits mm-hmm. for us as individuals, ranging mm-hmm. from a kind of very pure form of selfishness, like I'm not going to give to charity, so I have more money for myself, mm-hmm. or a more kind of general global kind of selfishness to point to something that's a bit of a current uh, mm-hmm. a current event situation, we're, gonna, we're not going to let refugees into the country because mm-hmm. they're going to take resources that could be given to, quote unquote, us, mm-hmm. to our citizens. So to offset that, what are some of the benefits of this? Like, why should we expand this circle of us if there are costs to us on some level of giving to others? Yeah. Well, to go into it, first, I want to say that as you know, Forrest, uh, what you said right there about refugees, you're mm-hmm. reporting an argument that some people make, yeah, not absolutely. asserting yourself as a statement of fact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think your question is really fundamental, and it speaks to the trajectory that we've been on this year, in which we began with compassion, especially compassion for yourself. Mm-hmm. And we really emphasized, I think as of the second podcast in this series of 50, mm-hmm. getting on your own side, being strong on your own behalf. 
valuing what you value and deciding for yourself what your own course of action will be. I mean, that's really foundational. And even most recently in the more relational discussions we've had about relationships, we've really emphasized the, uh, the place for speaking up for yourself, the courage it takes to assert yourself um, skillfully with other people, and the importance of preserving to yourself the autonomy that is actually a foundation for intimacy. So it's in that context and that you're exactly right, we're mm-hmm. getting into this. So I think there are two kinds of arguments for the us and them topic. One of them is our secondary argument. We're just going to note it in passing and move on. That's the moral argument that distinct from Mm self-interest, we have duties to others or there are larger moral purposes. All right. Those could be a certain set of reasons for expanding the circle of us to include more of them. In our framework here, we're going to talk about enlightened Mm self-interest, pragmatic Mm self-interest. So stipulated for the record for sure. We're not speaking here about what some research call pathological altruism. We're not making an argument for self-sacrifice in a way that doesn't feel right to you. So then the question becomes, why might it be in your own pragmatic self-interest to expand the circle of us? Here's where I want to start with a key distinction between rationally recognizing differences, differentiation, distinction. That's all very reasonable. That's different from carrying others around in your own mind as if they are your enemy in an extreme sense, or as if they are not human beings like you. That's the problematic kind of theming that I want to speak to. So first, when we them others in that way, in other words, when we see them as more threatening than they really are, or less human than they really are, that's stressful for us. And it makes us feel more anxious, It also makes us less effective, usually, in our interactions with those other people. We become more defensive and aggressive uh, if we see them as enemies and less able to discern opportunities. Flip the other way, when we regard others as inhuman or less than human, or in a sense, it's in terms of the framing of uh, Martin Buber's notion of three kinds of relationships, I, thou, I, it, it, it. When we regard others in that way as less than fully human, we then often will act inadvertently uh, or even deliberately in ways that are exploitive that eventually come back to haunt us, blow back. You know, someone wants to find karma as hitting golf balls in a shower. And when we uh, regard others as more of an enemy than they really are, or if we regard others as less human than they really are, that's like hitting golf balls in a shower. And it may not be in the moment. It may not be that hour or that day or that year, but eventually the consequences come back to harm us. Mm -hmm. To angle that maybe a slightly different direction, a little bit more current eventsy, a little more sociopolitical for better or worse, I think that there are ways where a certain level of us-centricness was really appropriate throughout most of human history. And I think there are ways where maybe a little bit of that is certainly still appropriate today. But more so than ever before, we are living kind of apart together. The world is increasingly flat. And these days, a lot of the problems that you see happening to them 
eventually, as you're saying, golf ball in the shower, come on back to hurt us. Mm. So I think that it's actually, as you're saying, very much a kind of enlightened self-interest to widen that circle and to include as many people as possible in this framing of the good things that happen to us. So yeah. that's sort of another way maybe to to put a spin mm-hmm. on this topic. That being said, you were referring before to different kinds of personal relationships and also this idea that, you know, being discerning is okay, but being discriminating is not okay. That's a great way to summarize it. Yeah. So how can we tell if we're theming somebody versus just appropriately judging them based on their individual actions and behavior. Yeah. This is one of those topics that can be engaged very abstractly and conceptually. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think is kind of the least useful way to engage it. Okay. Where I think it gets a lot more real is when you just watch your own mind when you're talking with another person. Mm. And you're interacting with them. Maybe you're having a disagreement about something. Notice in your own mind how you lose contact with the other person as a being, including over seconds or dozens of seconds at a time. When you kind of withdraw, you go into your own mind and you Mm -hmm. you spin a bit about it and you reflect about it. And in in the moment of doing that, you're not really feeling the other person. Mm. And we can, as you flip it around, we can recognize when others are doing that too. We can see them go away. We can we can notice what feels like uh, a kind of breakdown of empathic attunement, to use that technical term, mm-hmm. from the other person. And right there, you have a very visceral sense of what it's like to lose contact with the thouness of the other person. Mm. It also shows up when we jump to conclusions about other people, mm-hmm. or we don't really listen fully to get the full texture, the full fabric of what that other person is saying. In these ways, very simply and directly, you can, you can experience the degree to which we can sometimes summarize others or you know, reduce them in some way to a caricature of what they really think and feel or a kind of two-dimensional, almost stick figure in our mm-hmm. own mind. Yeah. Other examples of this that are very close to experience are simply walking down a street or in any kind of a busy place where there sure. are people moving through that you don't know. And watch your own mind sort people into categories. Mm. Like me, not like me, including related to distinctions like height, age, gender, social class, appearance, likely profession, body type, level of fitness, psychological profile, sure, you name it. You just kind of sort people. And you watch your mind sorting people. And then watch what travels with that. Mm. When you sort somebody into a category that is a like me category, mm-hmm. or it's included in the circle of us, like, oh, nice person, or man like me, or woman like me, or liberal like me, mm-hmm. or youthful person in my late 20s, early 30s like me, as soon as you sort them like that, then there's that sense of, oh, okay, you're, we're on the same team. You're kind of like me. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we sort people in the other category, there's a sense of distancing from them. And there's a lot of research that shows that people are much less, on average, much less uh, able to be or inclined to be empathic to those that are sorted into the them category and also are much more likely to attribute bad intentions mm. to them rather than good intentions. 
and we're also uh, less inclined to be generous toward those that we define as them. And a lot of this theming happens unconsciously or semi-consciously. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's great to be more mindful of it, to start foregrounding it. And paradoxically, I've found that if you affirm to yourself your right to stand up for yourself mm-hmm. and affirm to yourself that you're not going to be pushed around and you're not going to be exploited and you're not going to be manipulated or spun by that other person, then paradoxically, you're much more prepared to kind of lower your defenses and continue to relate to them as an us like you. For me, there are a few sort of important things to mention here. The first is that this is a tendency that we all have, period. Soup to nuts, every single person has this tendency. And we all probably manifest it to varying degrees in our lives, have varying degrees of sensitivity toward it, or are aware of it, rather subconsciously versus consciously in different levels. But everyone, when they walk down the street, does this. So what we're certainly not trying to say here is that people who do this are bad, and that we, you know, they should just immediately not do this. I don't think that that's necessarily a realistic or an obtainable thing. And in general, on this podcast, we've really tried to focus on things that are realistic and obtainable. But what we can do, as you were saying, is foreground that process and become aware of it. One of the things that has really been a running theme for us throughout the year has been this idea of metacognition, you know, Mm. watching the brain work. Mm. And the better that we can get at watching our brains work, the more aware we can become of our own internal biases and tendencies, whether they be tendencies in communication with another person or they be tendencies around using and theming other people. Mm. I think that along those lines, something that might be useful for people to do, you know, myself included, is to evaluate some of the biases that might exist in your life based on life experience. Whether those be related to your personal history, negative experiences with an individual that might have biased you towards the group of people that that individual belongs to, on a, on a personal level, on a professional level, on a social level, whatever that might be. I mean, we all have those biases. And the more that we can kind of safely foreground them and become aware of them, the better I think we can become at widening the circle over time. Totally true. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Great. So with that in mind, what can we actually do to start trying to expand that circle of us? That's a great question for us. And my personal opinion uh, is that as a species, as the whole human us, the whole seven plus billion members of our tribe, this question that you've put on the table here is the most important question Mm -hmm. for us to face as a species in the 21st century. In my view, if we get the answer to it right, we're going to be able to answer all the other questions and Mm -hmm. solve the other problems. They will be manageable, difficult, but manageable. But if we do not get this question right, if we do not find ways to operate as a single unified human us with stewardship for this very rare and precious planet that we have, no other questions are going to be answered well over the next hundred years. That said, a way into this might be to think of it almost like a kind of meditative inquiry. So I'll do it in that way. And uh, if you like, as a listener, you can pause the podcast and take some time for quiet reflection um, at each one of these steps along the way. So to kind of prime the process, here we go. It helps to bring to mind the feeling of us. 
Uh, mm. it, it consistent with attachment theory, we need to establish a secure base from which then we can widen the circle and go out and explore. So bring to mind one or more beings that you feel close to. You like them, they like you, could be your, your dog, could be your friend, your partner, a child, a parent. Bring to mind the feeling of connection, the feeling of us. Maybe being part of a team or a group or standing in common cause with others who see the world the same way, care about the same things. Know what it's like to feel like you're part of a group, part of an us. Second, moving here step by step and reminding you that you can slow this down if you want, bring to mind someone that's a little bit outside the circle of us, but is still someone that's easy to feel caring toward, someone who is suffering, like a child, far away or close to home, who's scared, who's hungry, perhaps separated from her family. And notice what it's like to mobilize compassion for someone that's not immediately apparent to you as an us. Then third, building on this warm-heartedness, think about various people uh, in your life, uh, either that you know concretely or you can just imagine that, that these kind of people exist, uh, people who live nearby that you don't know well at all, people that you might see walking down a street or see in a supermarket. And as you reflect on these many, many different kinds of people, think about similarities. In other words, bring to mind, for example, someone real or someone in your imagination that you, you, know, you see walking down the street and think to yourself, you know, like me, you get headaches. Like me, you like the taste of donuts. Like me, you worry about your kids. Like me, you too are vulnerable to aging, disease, and death. In other words, focus on commonality, shared qualities that establish an us-ness with these people that might not seem initially like an us to you. Notice what that's like to, to find kindredness with these other beings. And then in the fourth step, moving from beings that are neutral, let's say, to you, and yet seemingly different, that you have found some kind of commonality with, let's move on to those who might be more challenging. Perhaps people you know in um, your immediate circle that you're at odds with, or you feel very alienated from or pushed away by. It could also be people more generally in the world that belong to groups that uh, you are in conflict with or uh, feel uh, anxious about or threatened by, uh, politically, economically. And as you consider these kinds of people, think about them as young children, as beings who, like you, were little once upon a time, who were excited, scared, confused, vulnerable, wanted things, and developed uh, one way or another. So right there is a sense of common ground. 
I do this with people that are really aggravating sometimes. I'll just feel my way into recognizing the little kid way down deep inside them. And that helps me get calmer and even stronger and more skillful in the way I am with that other person. Another thing you can do with people that are more difficult for you is to imagine some of the many forces like the ones that you have faced in your own life, the many forces that have shaped them into being what they are today. Economic forces, cultural forces, generational in their family, um, historical forces that have made them what they are. And in the recognition of these forces, you can realize that, wow, these forces are part of the fabric of human society over the last several centuries altogether. We are alike in the ways that we've been buffeted by these currents traveling through time. And here too, I can feel a kind of commonality with people that uh, I don't like their politics, perhaps, or I'm opposed to them in one way or another. And yet I can feel the common humanity, the common ground, really, that we're all standing on here. Another thing you can do is get a sense of how life's not always so great for them. Uh, We tend to have impressions of other people that uh, are unaware of the secret struggle that they're engaged with, the burdens that they're carrying. And if um, you bring to mind someone who seems like an enemy or an adversary, but you also are aware of their burdens, their pains, their losses, um, there's an immediate kind of movement here as well into a sense of common humanity with them. And then in the fifth step, if you like, you might just imagine a widening circle that starts with yourself and widens out physically uh, in your immediate setting and then widening farther in the town that you're in, widening even farther at your own pace to include your region, and eventually, step by step, widening the circle to include the whole wide world. And as your circle widens, bringing to mind so many forms of life inside that circle, including plants, little microbes, as well as, more obviously, the creatures of the the sea, the land, and the air. And as well, of course, all the human beings uh, that are included in that circle. So as you widen that circle, notice what it feels like increasingly to feel that uh, we're all in this together. We all have a piece of the puzzle. And notice how your body kind of calms and softens as op- and opens as, in your own mind, this circle of us is expanding around you. Yeah, I think that's a great exercise and a great lead practice by you there. So I think that personally, it's kind of poetic that we're ending the year more or less where we began, with a feeling of developing self-compassion and compassion generally, both for ourselves and for other people. So speaking of the year as a whole, I'd like to do a little reflecting here back through some of the previous topics that we've covered. So to sort of start us off, are there any themes or ideas, concepts that stand out to you as particularly key from the 12 strengths as a whole? Are there any kind of highlights that you would like to hit here? My first reflection is implicit in what you and I have been doing for a year now, Mm -hmm. which is the value in stepping back from 
your own stream of consciousness, mm. your own thoughts, your own feelings, stepping back and reflecting on it. And reflecting from the standpoint of agency, like, hey, I'm going to exercise some influence over it. I'm not just at the effect of it. I actually can do something to influence it. Mm -hmm. And from the standpoint of the development of greater skillfulness, mm. greater competence. So right there is, I think, one of the most valuable things of all. Mm -hmm. And as a longtime therapist, I can just tell you that half the battle, half the journey easily is for a person to begin to be able to do just this thing that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. In other words, to be able to step out of the movie or the reaction cascade that they're caught up in and instead reflect upon it, implicit in that, have the standpoint and the feeling that, you know, I'm going to do something about this. I'm not just swept down this river helplessly. Uh, and also, you know, it's on me to get more and more competent mm. with my own stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's one of the most fundamental takeaways of all. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, maybe another way to say that is just to kind of put it as simply as possible. Our brains can be extremely unreliable narrators. Mm. And that's in general how I like to frame it when I start talking to people that your brain has an agenda and it's the same agenda that it had a million years ago when we were running around on the Serengeti or whatever mm. and um, trying to escape incredibly dangerous predators and trying to not be killed by members of other bands, as you were talking about before, yeah. and all of that good stuff. And that agenda is survival. And once you understand your brain's narrative to yourself in that framing of the goal here is just survival, I think that a lot of the experiences that we have, a lot of the thoughts that we think, can all of a sudden get kind of framed into their appropriate context. Um, and it becomes a little bit easier to just view them with a little bit of skepticism and to kind of take that mental narrative that we might have with a little bit of a grain of salt. That's something that has been really a consistent topic that we've touched upon in these episodes. Well, isn't that interesting, though? Because mm. just to kind of play it out, it's like a hall of mirrors almost. If the brain is really tricky and unreliable, how can we believe what we are reflecting on or mindfully sure, aware sure, of? Yeah. Including, can we believe that our brain is unreliable? Sure. So I'm going to throw it back to you, Forrest. What, for you, uh, establishes the ring of truth mm, mm -hmm. when it comes to practical wisdom about our own psychology? Well, for starters, I think that's a really big question, and we could probably spend the better part of several episodes unpacking that question individually, but yeah. to try to do something yeah. giving a, uh, a semblance of an answer to you, really what I'm talking about here is intercepting the moment between a stimulus and a response. Huh. Much as you were saying earlier with how we walk down the street and we can get good at watching the immediate brain sorting... Yeah. of people into different categories. I think that there's a version of that that's happening basically constantly throughout our lives in different ways, where the brain basically has a babble of underlying thought that kind of runs underneath as this running narrator throughout all of our experiences, ranging from you have an interaction with somebody else and the brain starts thinking things to you like, oh, that means they don't, they don't actually like you, or oh, that was actually really mean what they said to me. You know, whatever it might be, we have this constant babble. And I think that that largely kind of un unconscious or subconscious babble 
it is tough to quiet. There are certainly a lot of practices that we can do to become better at kind of quieting the mind and stepping into more immediate relationship with people and like all that good stuff. But where I think most of the intervention can really happen is that we can become conscious of the stream and aware that it's just a stream, Hmm. that it's just a flow of experience through the mind. And where we can step in is before that flow moves us into action Hmm. that becomes problematic. Mm -hmm. So it's that idea of that's the stimulus, but what do you do with your response to it? It's It's very reminiscent of what we were talking about way back when around first dart, second dart. Mm. We have a stimulus, mm. but that doesn't mean we need to give it a response. Yeah. Um, somebody's a little short with us for a moment and our brain says, oh, that means they don't like us. But we don't have to take that immediate thought and install it into our minds as an absolute truth. We can be a little bit more skeptical. We can say, uh, maybe that's true, or maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe that's true. Or maybe, you know, our tone with them was a little bit short, so they just kind of got reactivated with us, and we had a funky moment, but it's actually all okay, and our Mm. relationship's really, really good. Mm. You know, things like that. And I just think that in general, most people, and I'm making a broad generalization here, which is always dangerous, Mm. tend to really trust those immediate stimuluses that the brain gives them Mm. without being able to kind of take a little tiny step back and Mm. asking the question, is that really true? Yeah. That's great. You know, as a longtime therapist, I think so much of what life's about is this two-step dance. Mm. Step in, step back. Step in, step back. And some people tend to step in too much. Some people tend to step back too much. Uh, The two serve each other, uh, and there's a rhythmic, spiraling quality. But it's really about that. We step into our reaction stream. We feel it. We um, explore it. We learn it by feeling it and letting Mm -hmm. it flow. On the other hand, we need to be able to step back, uh, including have a little part of us that's not swept along, mm-hmm. even in the moment of experiencing it all. So yeah, I think that's a key. And maybe to build on that or to generalize from that, yeah, sure. also another topic that popped out for me a lot, and it was neat to see how interested you were for us mm-hmm. in it, is this territory of what we've called the strong heart. Mm-hmm. How do you integrate being moral, benevolent, compassionate, kind, et cetera, with simultaneously protecting yourself and mm-hmm. being strong and being mm-hmm. assertive and you know letting people know where they messed up and you want something to happen different in the future. Um, that territory in terms of practical, interpersonal communication, I think also has been a major highlight over the course of the year. Absolutely. In the book Resilient, probably my personal favorite chapters in it are the chapters on intimacy and courage. Hmm. Because they're the chapters that are really diagnostic around how do you actually become a, a skilled communicator through time. And you really kind of bring the bring to bear the 35-ish years of clinical practice that mm-hmm. you've had. Just the underlying themes of being patient and taking responsibility and stating clearly what you want with somebody else, I think are probably the most impactful things that a random person could take from these episodes and just install into their day-to-day life and see the biggest day-to-day impact on the way that their lives look. So I think that that's definitely very central um, material. Yeah. Maybe one more sort of highlight that is like a through line for me mm-hmm. in this whole thing is the sense of hopeful possibility. Mm. If there's an implicit message woven into everything that we've done this year. It's that 
you really can change yourself for the better. And it doesn't come from a sense that there's something wrong with you as you are or an inadequacy. But that said, to feel that, you know, bit by bit, I can shed unnecessary anxiety and irritation and hurt. And bit by bit, I can grow more of a felt sense of well-being and contentment and calm strength and happiness and lovingness inside myself. Wow, that's good news, right? There's a possibility here. I don't need to just sort of hover in my life or orbit, you know, same old, same old patterns or stagnate. Actually, I can change and grow and be influential about that process. And for me, that's so wonderfully hopeful and optimistic. Mm-hmm. And actually, just to kind of build on that point, I was reading some scholarly stuff recently, and there's consistent research that optimism, including of the sort that I just described, this view that the future can be better in part because you can make it better, even in the face of your challenges, optimism actually tends to confer long-term physical health benefits even Mm. helping people live longer. Mm -hmm. Not just because when you're healthier, you're more likely to be optimistic, but actually that uh, rational optimism itself contributes to your long-term well-being. So I guess that would be another takeaway for me in, in all this, that this is a really hopeful, positive truth here, that there are so many good things you can do to make your life better. I think that's a great kind of final note to conclude this episode and our series through the 12 strengths as a whole on. So again, thank you to all of our listeners for going on this journey with us. And today we talked about expanding the circle of us. You began by explaining what you mean by this, how as we go through life, we're constantly subconsciously sorting people into two categories, like us and not like us. And this was certainly a very useful tool a million years ago or hundreds of thousands of years ago, where survival was largely predicated on helping us while surviving them. But these days, with a flatter world and constantly being surrounded by thems of various kinds, it's become a very harmful way to move through the world, both for our species as a whole and also just selfishly for us as individuals. We spoke about the reasons that it's beneficial to help them as it is to help us, and how helping them through time can also come back and help us. Mm. You then gave a great kind of guided practice for how we can work to expand that circle in our day-to-day lives and, you know, aspirationally over time, maybe help our species as a whole do that a little bit more. Then we concluded with some takeaways from our journey through the 12 strengths as a whole. This is our 50th episode, and we've certainly covered a lot of material over time. And I think that some of those notes that we touched on, that idea of metacognition and the hopefulness uh, that we really can change ourselves and our brains and our lives over time, we're really running through lines throughout all of this material. So on that note, next week, we'll have a special sort of bonus episode this year focused on setting our resolutions, goals, and intentions for the new year. So until then, thanks for listening.